Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. Since 2014, we've been bringing you conversations with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. Topics we cover include technology, culture, leadership, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global Studio in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at the power of change. How non-software companies can still benefit from the ideas that underlie agile software development methodologies. Developing actions behind the, we want to make a change phrase. And how to make change seem less overwhelming and more human. Here with us today to talk about all that and more is Braden Kelly, co-founder of InnovationExcellence.com and author of Charting Change a visual toolkit for making change stick. Braden is also the author of Stoking Your Innovation Bonfire, a roadmap to a sustainable culture of ingenuity and purpose. Braden advises companies of all shapes and sizes on how to grow revenue, cut costs, and build sustainable cultures of innovation. He is also a popular keynote speaker, workshop facilitator, and thought leader on the topics of continuous innovation and change. Braden works with his clients to create innovative strategies, digital transformations, and increased organizational agility. Welcome to the podcast, Braden. Thank you, Will. Great to be here. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you. So let's kick things off today talking about your latest book, Charting Change. In it, you name five change gaps or actions that can stall an organization and prevent it from keeping up with the ever-evolving technological landscape. Can you give listeners an overview of what those change gaps cover and why they can be so dangerous? Sure, sure. And just to clarify, when we talk about change gaps, basically we're we're talking about people not keeping up with the the pace of change or the needs for change in, in certain ways. And those ways include uh, the speed of internal change within the organization being slower than the speed of external change. Uh, it can also be the the speed of innovation being slower than the the speed of your competitors. It can be how flexible your resources are, how quickly you're able to redeploy resources to the areas where they're needed as conditions in your environment change. Uh, but they can also include things like your hiring speed being slower than than the speed of your growth. Uh, and so if that occurs, then of course, you're, you're not able to keep up with the demands of your customers, whether that's meeting their product shipment needs or whether that's meeting their service needs. So it's very important that the companies are geared up for the ability to deliver the, the speed of change and speed of hiring that is necessary to maintain their growth. And then finally, if your speed of decision making is slower than what is required to keep up with the changes. And, and that's often the case in many organizations, unfortunately, is that it takes so long to make a decision that by the time a decision is taken, uh, then the organization is falling behind the curve and what the customer is expecting. And so then the, the customer's perception of the service that's provided is lower or the their competitors are able to, to make decisions faster and take actions quicker and they start to fall behind in the marketplace. Okay, and you cite the Agile methodology as a great way to embed change into an organization's DNA. Here at Three Pillar, we're very familiar with the Agile methodology and how it's used in software development. 
but how can non-software companies implement some agile principles into their everyday workflow and work life? Sure. So I like to talk about the, the concept of agile change. And for me, agile change is the intersection between some of the agile methodologies uh, and also between change management and project management. And why agility or why some of the agile methods are important or applicable to organizational change is that from, from my perspective, achieving success with an organizational change effort or even with a project, because if you think about it, every project changes something. And so thus every project is a small organizational change initiative or even, or a large one, depending on the size of the project. Uh, so if you, if you look at, uh, the success in a change effort, it's in my mind, not all about quick wins. It's about momentum. And one of the keys to sustaining and creating momentum is to chunk things up in a way that makes sense. And that allows you to, uh, roll out the change in a way that's both digestible and also, uh, capable of being resourced appropriately. And so, so from my mind, as you look at the agile behaviors and the agile principles and the agile values, if you start to, to utilize those in your organizational change efforts, it helps you prepare yourself for dealing with and implementing the constant change that's required of our organizations today. And so to, to dig a little deeper on that, a lot of companies will say, we want to make a change, but then they have no formal way to go about making or implementing those changes. In the book, you outline five keys to successful change as a response. What are those keys and how can companies use them to plan for change? Sure. So the, the way that I see it is that there are, like you said, five keys to successful change. And uh, part of the reason that I, that I outline this simple framework is that you know, a lot of people tend to talk about either change management, which gets a little confusing because in the software development environment, we can talk about change management as the, the management of changes to software. Um, but a lot of people or increasing number of people are speaking about change management itself as being the process of managing change. So, so once we get beyond that confusion, uh, it gives us one of the keys, which is change management. Uh, and the second one that gets talked about the most is change leadership. But then I think it's important that people also think about change planning. And I think that often organizations don't do a good enough job at planning organizational change in a way that allows them to create that momentum and sustain that momentum. Uh, but also you have to have change portfolio management because at any particular time, especially if you take to heart that idea that every project is a change effort, uh, then you need to manage that portfolio of changes or you'll run into situations of change saturation and other things that can sabotage your, your change uh, within the organization. And then finally, once you get towards the end of your change effort and start to install your change, then you need to have a plan for how you're going to maintain the change. Uh, so it's you know it's kind of like if you send somebody to rehab, uh, you don't just let them go at the end after they they finish the program. There's there's a another program to to help them maintain that that uh, undertaking that they've gone through in rehab so that they don't relapse. And so change maintenance is that one. So you have change management, change leadership, change planning change maintenance, and then, of course, change portfolio management. Those are the five. 
And one major roadblock to change is readiness for it. So organizations may identify that there is a need for change, but not necessarily evaluate whether they have the system to support it. And you think the best way to go about it is to make change a more human process. And you propose to do this through the flow of change model. Can you break the model down for us? Sure. So the flow of change model version 1.5, which, which indicates <laughs> that there was a version 1.0 at one point in time, and it's it evolved several times before the publishing of the book. Via the, uh, via the flow of change model, I assume? Yes, of course. <laughs> uh, and, and, and part of that evolution was to uh, give people the ability to add some, some measurement to how well they're doing it going through the, the flow of change. And as you know, as we look at our ability to transform and keep pace with change, I wanted to give people the ability to uh, sort of break down how well they're doing on the different aspects, and, and we'll kind of go through those. So it starts with starting with the status quo, so really understanding what is the current situation. So that's that's the first step. And then the second is identifying the problem, because the better that you understand the problem, the better that you're going to be able to understand many of the different aspects that are going to come into play as you seek to make a change from the status quo. Uh, many people like to say, well, this is the problem, then jump to the solution. Um, but then we wouldn't get through all, all 13 steps in the in the flow of change, right? So, uh, so I have a very strong belief that the better that you understand the problem, the better your solutions are going to be and the better your process is going to be and the more success that you'll have as you move through the flow of change. And so start with status quo, identify the problem. Then you have to sell the problem because you might have an idea of what the problem is, but other people might not think that it's a problem. Other people might not define the problem in the exact same way that you do. So it's very important to go through a process of selling the problem and during that process you may find yourself clarifying the definition of the problem further. Uh, then once, once you've done that, then you want to collaborate to identify what needs to end uh, because part of change is not just shifting from one thing to another but also deciding to stop doing certain things. And so once you well understand the problem and, and you start looking at creating a solution, part of that solution is going to be stop, to stop doing certain things uh, and then to change certain things. And so uh, that, that's a key distinction that I like to, to, to make. And then we get to the sort of the midpoint in my mind, which is starting to communicate the change. And then... Uh, going back to ending certain things, it's it's important to sort of celebrate the ending because certain people have gotten really good at doing things the old way. Certain people have developed a lot of expertise in in doing the old way and, and potentially uh, feel those as a certain source of power. Uh, and so it's good to acknowledge how the thing that you're leaving behind uh, added value to the organization and to the individuals within it. Uh, and so that could be, you know, all kinds of things, including holding a sort of a mock funeral for what it is that you're leaving behind. Then people get to sort of the, the meaty part of any change effort, which is starting to try on the change. Let's, ex let's take it for a test drive. Let's see what this change is going to look like. And as they do that, they're going to reach a stage of disequilibrium. It's, it's 
going to feel like you know learning how to drive for the first time. You you know it's important. You know you need to do it, uh, but it's a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, you may find people reverting back to some of the old ways of doing things as they experiment with the new ways of doing things, and as that disequilibrium starts to clear, it's important to reinforce the change so that people don't slip back to doing the the old way. And finally, you should end up with a, a new way of doing things. So that's that's the flow of change as I see it. And uh, I've added some some measurement capabilities within that so that people, as they go through their various projects or go through their various change efforts, that they can set a baseline for how long it takes their organization to go through the, the different steps uh, at a high level for different sizes of projects and change efforts. And over time, then start to measure whether they're making progress at becoming more uh, agile as an organization. Yeah, I, I like the idea of, uh, of, of holding a mock funeral for things that, uh, that you're going to, to stop doing. It reminds me a little bit of the... Uh, of the book that's been on the bestseller list about tidying up and it's a totally different area, but uh, you, you may have heard of it. It's the life-changing magic of tidying up the Japanese art of decluttering and organizing where you literally put everything you own into the middle of a room, hold on to it and think about whether or not it brings you joy. And if it doesn't, you thank it for its service and throw it away. Uh, and if it does, then it, it remains in your life. Uh, but some, uh, maybe some parallels there. Yes, yes, and it, it's also kind of similar to where you take everything out of your house and then decide consciously what goes back in. And you know, moving, moving cubicles, moving houses is oftentimes a a good time to decide whether something is still adding value to your life and whether you see it as something that you want to carry forward into the next chapter of your life. Yeah, definitely. So, one common side of change and one common reaction to it is resistance. So not everyone will be thrilled with new processes, new activities. And you've identified five different change reactions. There are strong supporters, tepid supporters, the disaffected, passive resistors, and passionate resistors. Are there things that leaders can do in an organization to identify and kind of help bring along the latter two that you mentioned? Sure. Sure, yes, definitely as uh, you go through a change effort, especially people, if you think of it as a bell curve, uh, the people at the, the outlying ends of the, the curve, are, well, they'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> it'll be pretty clear whether they're passionate uh, resistors or strong supporters. Uh, the people towards the middle will be a little bit harder read to get on, uh, or it'll be a little harder to get a read on them. But what you'll find is that the bulk of the people will be in that that middle, especially in the groups of the disaffected and the passive resistors. And uh, those are the two groups that if you can even shift them you know, to the left, one category, if you were to imagine it left to right with the strong supporters on the left and the passionate resistors on the right, um, you don't have to move a passionate resistor to become a strong supporter. And I think that Oftentimes, leaders find themselves falling into that trap. Because it is kind of a bell curve, all you really need to do to be successful is to start to move people one, one category to the left. And especially if you can focus on those two middle categories more than the, the right two, I would say, uh, the more success that you'll have. So don't, 
don't think of it as a huge job and a, something that's going to take a massive undertaking because you're trying to shift people's opinions so far. Uh, try to think about concrete steps that you can take as a leader to uh, shift people a little bit to the left. So, Braden, you believe that change is and should be a collaborative experience, and you've identified 11 change roles to form a change leadership team. I know we don't have time probably to go into all 11, but what are some of the roles that you write about constituting a change leadership team? Sure. So, so I think it's very important uh, to, to talk about roles when we talk about efforts like this rather than you know, personality types or whether somebody has the capability or not. Because I think ultimately, as we look at any effort, there are certain roles that need to be filled for the effort to be a success. And in regards to a change effort, I think it's it's very important just to pick a few to have people that are ready and willing and good at stepping into an evangelist or storyteller role that can really help to visualize what the problem is, sell that problem, and then start to visualize and communicate the, the potential solution and the path to that solution. Uh, and so evangelists and storytellers are very important. But as you start to, to plan your leader, uh, your change effort it's very and build your change leadership team, it's also important for those people to uh, bring in some of the, the impacted and get some of their perspectives really find out what some of their concerns are going to be, the people that are going to be directly impacted by the efforts. Uh, but then also some people that aren't even going to be touched by the effort. So some some people that are external to the effort or external to the project and its goals to, to get their perspectives on based how you describe it and your vision for it, uh, what the impact of the project is going to be. And, and the, the reason for that is those people might give you insight into things that you know people that are really close to it might not uh and so those are just a couple and obviously there are several others uh we could talk about at length but uh those are those are a few key areas uh, and groups to consider okay and uh and with, with any change effort there is bound to be resistance and there are bound to be both barriers and negative consequences how do you recommend kind of facing these as they arise and helping your teams get past them? Well, I think it's very important to try to first understand, um, you know, where people fall in terms of their level of resistance to the change and, and then also dig in to, to get a clear sense of the kinds of barriers and obstacles that people are going to face and try to identify the tangible things that fall into those sort of different categories of of barriers and obstacles. So in the book, I talk about four key types of barriers and obstacles, and those are psychological or political, uh, logistical, financial, and external. And and so digging into those those things, just a couple of points on say psychological and political barriers. One thing is you have to really look at going in what the level of trust in the organization is and within the the people that are going to be impacted for the change to to get a sense for how much appetite for change there's going to be and also potentially the as you look at the culture of the organization you know how ready is the culture to to adopt the kind of change that you're you're willing to make and so 
uh, there's there's a process that I lay out in the book for examining and making some changes around overcoming some of these barriers and obstacles. And it starts with identifying what they are, uh, then seeking to understand the barrier and obstacle and who benefits from it being there. Because oftentimes it exists because it's it works for somebody. And so we identify, we understand, we plan or we strategize. Uh, then we probe, uh, and what I mean by that is that's where we start to, to come up with a, a strategy for how we're going to overcome that barrier obstacle, and we, we kind of try it out. We test it out with a few people. We see whether our potential way over, under, around, or through that obstacle is going to work, and, um, and if it doesn't look like it, we have a very good solution or a very good approach, then um, we circle you know, we, we try to refine that. And then when we think when we have a good uh, way, then we proceed and we really go full force and attack uh, the obstacle and observe the response, respond, and it's kind of an iterative process. So there's a little bit of iteration in the pro, but um, there's also sort of full cycle iteration after you start to, to go for it and try to overcome that obstacle and see how people react. And one of the keys that you write about to a successful change implementation is a regular cadence for it that is comfortable for the organization as a whole. So this means the change must be incremental enough that it can be readily adopted, but fast enough that you see positive forward momentum. So how do you find this delicate balance and avoid change saturation? Sure. So... Just to kind of reiterate, I'm a big believer in momentum and not quite as much in uh, quick wins because I think that when you overload your approach to, to the side of quick wins, then your your effort is not, uh, not, a, not set up in a way that is quite as sustainable and able to sustain that momentum. So it's all about momentum for me. And so that's where some of the agile principles start to come in because you look at your whole change effort and try to, to block it out into you know, sprints or into segments or whatever you want to call it uh, that allow you to, uh, number one, make sure that you're not trying to tap into uh, resources that are you know, not always available. Uh, and number two, that you're not going so fast that, that people just can't cope with the, the change that you're trying to, to implement. So it's finding that right pace so that you can maintain that, that uh, forward momentum. And then change saturation rears its ugly head in more than one way. One, the, the most common way that people think about change saturation is that the, the intended people that you're targeting the change at potentially just can't take any more change. So you're you're going to the accounting department and you're implementing SAP and you're implementing this, that, and the other system or changing processes and procedures and uh, doing a merger and, and doing a divestiture and you know all these things all at once and people just can't cope with all that change all at once. But then the other side of change saturation is uh, running too many projects, utilizing the same resources at the same time so that your, your project starts to fall behind and, and potentially fail because the resources it needs to succeed are not available. Uh, and so that's why, as part of your portfolio management, that it's important to, to really lay out uh, in a structured way 
the different projects and change initiatives that you have going on and which resources they need, both capital resources and human resources, so that that you're uh, timing things appropriately and that you're also addressing that other side and timing things appropriately so that you're not overtaxing the the mental capabilities of somebody to absorb uh, as much change as you might be throwing at them. And innovation and change go hand in hand, but you believe that they're harder to manage together than one might think. So to ensure that organizations are striving for a sustainable pursuit of innovation, you came up with the eight eyes of infinite innovation. Can you explain this framework and how it encourages continuous innovation? Sure. So when it comes to innovation, most people take a uh, product approach to innovation, really trying to take take one idea and commercialize it and roll it out into the market, or a project approach to innovation, uh, and don't always take it as a system approach. And so I believe, number one, it's very important to build the right foundation for innovation, and that includes having a definition for what innovation is going to mean in your organization and building uh, a vision strategy and goals around innovation that line up with your organizational vision strategy and goals uh, so that you together those things form a, a common language of innovation. Uh, but I also believe that people take too often an idea-centric approach to innovation and it's not about the idea it's more about the insight and about the inspiration that will get you to an idea or a group of ideas. And so the eight eyes of infinite innovation was developed to, to give people an inspiration focused model for innovation that allows you to start to embed innovation within the organization on top of that foundation that you build. And so it starts with inspiration in the center and then it moves on to investigation, which is really all about finding a unique and differentiated customer insight. And that could be an internal or external customer. Uh, and then it, the third step is ideation. And the third step is where you start to talk about ideas. So it's not until the third step. It starts with inspiration. You want to provide people with uh, something to get their fires burning, something to start getting the juices flowing that will help people start to to be open and able to see those customer insights especially if you provide them with some good tools uh, and then you know so inspiration investigation ideation and then of course you have to have some level of iteration because most quote unquote ideas are actually idea fragments and need to be iterated on several times because they're only partial ideas in order to connect collect the dots and connect those dots into uh, a complete idea that starts to take shape as a concept that can continue then also to be iterated on. Uh, and then the, the fifth step is identification, which is really where you look at all the, the concepts that you've come up with and you, you choose one or more. Uh, and at that point, it loops back to the, the inspiration step. And it's like an infinity sign. So at this point, we're back in the in the middle with inspiration. And if you haven't identified concepts that inspire people, that people want to push even farther, then you probably want to loop back through investigation, ideation, iteration, and back through identification again. But if you have things that people are really jazzed about and really want to, to look at through the commercialization loop, 
then you start to, to go into that the other side, which is implementation, uh, illumination. Illumination is really all about sort of the other components of how I talk about innovation, which is a value-centric approach to innovation, which you have value creation, value translation, and value access. Value creation is self-explanatory. Uh, value translation is about helping people see how this new thing is going to fit into their lives and make their lives better. Uh, and then value access is how good of a job you do uh, at helping people unlock the value of an innovation potential idea. And so illumination is all about getting those three elements, value creation, value access, and value translation right. Because if you don't, then you won't succeed. Uh, and oftentimes people don't go far enough on value access and on value translation. Uh, and then finally you have installation, which is really all about getting it out there into the market, fixing whatever's wrong as it starts to go out, and trying to make that make sure that what you thought was going to be an innovation actually ends up being an innovation. Uh, and oftentimes things don't because certain elements are missing. And for something to become an innovation, it has to become widely adopted. Ultimately, an innovation has to replace something. And so, um, so that's key. And then it loops back around because you're ready to, to pick up the next, the next cycle. Okay, nice. Um, Braden, we, we do have one more question on the script, but I want to break from the script for a second. We're running a little low on time, and I do have a, a different burning question that I didn't add here that I hope you won't mind me asking. Your Twitter handle is at Innovate. So I'm curious to know, how early did you have to get into the Twitter game to get that Twitter handle? Oh, gosh. I think it was like 2009 or something. It was <laughs> <laughs> It was pretty early. I, I had I was lucky enough to be chatting with at pistachio and sort of really started to understand uh, that this Twitter thing was emerging. Didn't really know what I was going to do with it, and so I grabbed that one. Nice. Well, uh, it has clearly served you well with, uh, I believe, 17,000-plus followers at this point. Um, and uh and and obviously a great handle to have um Braden, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about harnessing the power of change within an organization uh, obviously people can find you on twitter at at innovate uh, and you're on innovationexcellence.com where you write off on your personal website at bradenkelly.com anywhere else online that people should be looking out for you uh they can also find other elements on linkedin it's linkedin.com slash in slash braden kelly Okay, very nice. And uh, and any other? Are you working on another book at this point? Just out of curiosity. Uh, I'm toying with the idea of doing something on digital transformation, but right now I think that there's a lot of great stuff in charting change and the change planning toolkit that goes with it. Uh, you know, I've got ten free downloads for from the change planning toolkit available up on my website. Uh, people get access to twenty six when they get the book, and then uh, there's 50 plus in the, the change planning toolkit itself. Okay, nice. Well, uh, Braden, thanks again. Some great food for thought for all our listeners out there. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much, Will. As we mentioned there toward the end of the podcast, if you'd like to learn more about Braden Kelly, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Innovate. 
You can also visit his personal website at bradenkelly.com. That's K-E-L-L-E-Y. Braden also frequently writes on the site that he co-founded, innovationexcellence.com. If you liked what you heard on this episode, please help spread the word about the podcast on your social media network of choice. If that happens to be Twitter, don't forget to mention at Innovate and at 3 Pillar Global in your tweets. Thanks very much for joining us for this episode of the podcast. Don't forget to tune in next time when we're excited to have Paul Sloan on the podcast to talk about his latest book, Think Like an Innovator, 76 Inspiring Business Lessons from the World's Greatest Thinkers and Innovators. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. The Innovation Engine Podcast is produced by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. You can subscribe to the Innovation Engine on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher Radio. And you can also ensure that you never miss an episode by going to threepillarglobal.com slash podcast and subscribing to receive fresh episodes in your inbox each time one comes out. You can also download our very own iOS app by going to the iTunes App Store and searching for the Innovation Engine Podcast. If you like what you hear on the Innovation Engine and you live in the world of product and software development, you may like our sister podcast, Take 3. Head on over to soundcloud.com slash take3pillar with the number 3 to hear my partner in crime, Julia Slattery, talking with 3Pillar team members to get quick takes on the trends, technologies, and tools that are changing the way software gets made and business gets done. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.